Right, okay. Uh, the, the last couple of uh, talks in the demonology series has uh, been addressing the whole fact that uh, very often people assume uh, quite wrongly that if you've got someone who is demonized, that it's going to be obvious. And uh, we've seen two categories. We've seen firstly the category when I've said demonization is obvious i.e. when maybe there's someone who you're having something to do with or maybe someone who wants prayer and they're demonized and it is absolutely obvious there's no need for the gift of discernment there's no need for prayer there's no need for anything like that you've got a category when it is obvious that someone is demonized and we saw that that quite simply is a category whereby if you have people experiencing clearly supernatural things, clearly supernatural phenomenon, which is not of the Holy Spirit, then you have someone who is clearly demonized. And it is obvious. And uh, sort of like, for instance, we saw the gathering demoniac. You know, this guy, he was able to break chains. And that was an obvious case of someone who was demonized and you remember last last week I think just in passing I just, you know, mentioned praying once for a girl and, and 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 I mean it took a few of us to hold the chair on the floor <laughs> all right because she you know she was sort of like levitating all over the place so instances like that it is obvious that you've got someone who's demonized but then the second category is what I called non obvious demonization and uh, that should be clear to us because there's a gift in the Bible as we saw the discernment of spirits. I, we saw the ability to distinguish when something is being caused by the power of evil spirits. All right. And the mere fact that there's a gift of discerning of spirits tells us that most people who are demonized are going to be in the non-obvious category. And we've seen in the last few talks as well that cases of obvious demonization, when you've really got, you know, sort of, uh, how would you say, clearly supernatural stuff going on, is actually quite rare. You won't meet it every day by any means. And we saw the scarcity of examples of demonization of that ilk, even in the Bible, all right? So we've seen that there is obvious demonization, and we have seen that there is non-obvious demonization. And in order to know when you've got a case of non-obvious demonization, you need to use the gift of the discerning of spirits. And last week we looked at that gift. Now you'll remember we did a big digression, didn't we? And I was showing you that the gift of the discerning of spirits is far from limited to ascertaining whether people individually have demons or not. And we saw that one of the uh, major uses of that gift is in fact in regards to false teaching, uh, doctrines of demons. Uh, ideas and uh, doctrines that are dispensed by evil spirits, the idea being to deceive people, whether to deceive non-Christians and to keep them away from Jesus, because after all, if a non-Christian has no awareness of their need for Jesus, they're not going to turn to him, they're not going to get saved, okay? And uh, secondly, in regards to people who do follow the Lord. But if Satan can get Christians believing things that aren't biblical, then he's going to get those people 
uh, whilst thinking they're following the Lord, in actual fact going off at all kinds of weird and wonderful tangents and not actually uh, following him at all. Now tonight what we're coming on to is probably uh, out of all the talks in this series the one that people are most interested in. Um, now if your interest in this talk is for wrong reasons and I guarantee you're going to be disappointed uh, because tonight what we're going to do is ask two questions really. How do you know if someone is demonised? We're going to be looking at the application of the gift of the discernment of spirits in order to ascertain whether individuals have a demon or demons, okay? And then the second question that we're going to ask is, right, assuming that you know someone is demonised, what do you do in order to set them free, okay? So two questions. We're going to be looking at the application of discerning whether or not individuals have evil spirits, and then if they do, what do you do in order to cast them out? Now, the first thing I want to say is that in regards to this, there is not going to be any ABC of deliverance, all right? There is no such thing. You can buy any number of books, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, deliverance in three easy steps, you know, stuff like that, and they got it all outlined and it's all <coughs> cut and dried. Obviously, it doesn't work like that. Nothing works like that, not in reality. Uh, you know, it's not all in a box or something like that. So, you know, there's no ABC of discernment. There's no technique that if you get an idea of the technique, then you'll know how to do it. It's not like that. Finally, as in everything in following the Lord, you must go as the Lord leads you. I'll be giving you the basic principles, but there are always variables, and there are always variables because we're human beings, and God has created a variable universe. So ABC, three easy steps, techniques, are not what we're going to be looking at tonight, okay? So then, we're going to move on in a few moments to how do you discern someone, but let's just start here. Let's assume you've got someone who is demonised. What do you do to set them free, all right? And the answer is quite simply this. You cast the demon or demons out of them, all right? It's as simple as that. Deliverance ministry is all about what the Bible calls casting evil spirits out of people. Go to Mark chapter 16, the Gospel of Mark. right at the end of Mark, the very last chapter. And if you find verse 17. Mark chapter 16, verse 17. And we simply read this. <coughs> uh, Jesus says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. Now there's a list of signs. We're interested purely in this one. And it's quite simply this. Jesus said, in my name they will cast out demons. Now, the bit we're interested in there is cast out. What exactly is this casting out of demons all about? Well, the Greek verb here, cast out, is ekbalo. Right? It comes from, most Greek verbs come from two different words, all right? Ek, which means out of. Uh, you know, remember uh, the word church in the Bible doesn't mean a building, it's ecclesia, starts with E-K, and it means a called out people. So you've got ek, which means out of, and you've got balo, which means to throw or to eject. So this verb here, ek balo, or to cast out evil spirits, means to throw evil spirits out. 
to eject evil spirits from the people whom they are in. Get an idea of this word, go to Luke 19, and we'll see exactly the same Greek word, ekbalo, but used in a different circumstance. Luke 19 and verse 45. Now, this is the story about where Jesus kind of got to the point he'd had it up to here with uh, all the stuff going on in the temple. People were making fortunes out of selling sacrifices in the temple. <coughs> uh, in other Gospels you get great detail about it, but in Luke you simply get this. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Now, if you look at John's account, you get more details, and you actually see that Jesus made himself a whip of cords, and he physically threw them out. This wasn't a, uh, you know, would you be so kind, dear fellows, as to go, you are offending me as your almighty God. Jesus physically threw them out. And that's what this word here, Jesus drove them out. He physically threw these people out of the temple. He picked them up, he grabbed them by the sleeves, and he slung them out. That is what the word ekbalu means. And that is exactly what we're to do with evil spirits when we come across them in people who want to be free. You throw the evil spirits out of them. You eject the evil spirits. Uh, you're in Luke. Go back now into chapter 10 of Luke. See something else here in regards to the casting out of spirits. Just give you an idea of what it actually is. Uh, so often you get these biblical phrases, casting out of evil spirits and stuff like that, and people have got a vague idea, but they don't know exactly what really it's all about. Now in Luke 10 and verse 19, um, and uh, here you've got a situation where the disciples have come back and they've been casting evil spirits out and they're, they're all excited. And Jesus said this, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now here, serpents and scorpions are kind of a picture of evil spirits. And what Jesus says here to them, they've discovered that they can cast evil spirits out of people and they're all excited. And Jesus is saying, yes, I've given you authority to tread or trample upon the power of the enemy. Now this verb here, all right, when you've got tread upon, I've given you authority to tread upon. That word there is pateo. Now, if you go still in Luke to chapter 21, and again, we'll see the same word but in a different context, just to give you an idea of what it actually means. Luke chapter 21. And uh, this is Jesus talking about the end times and talking about Israel's fate. Uh, but we really just want a semantic point here. Jesus said, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles. Now, obviously we know in AD 70, what happened was Jerusalem was just destroyed by the Romans. They completely ransacked it. They destroyed it. Now that here, when Jesus says, will be trodden down, <coughs> it's this Greek verb, patio, 
which Jesus used when he said, I have given you power to tread upon the enemy. And that what you've got is that this verb, it doesn't just mean to tread on. I mean, sort of like, for instance, you might be walking along the road and you tread on uh, uh, five pound notes. You bend down and pick it up. If you're less fortunate, you might tread on something else that you wouldn't want to reach down and pick up at all. Uh, it's not just a question of treading on something. The idea here is, is to sort of, to stamp out of existence. The meaning of this verb is to absolutely crush. I mean, sort of picture, picture a little kiddie when they're having a tantrum. You know, you see kiddies with raving tantrums and they're jumping up and down and they're stamping their feet. That would be the Greek verb here. So what we've got is the idea that we have authority to throw out or to eject evil spirits. And also we have authority to tread upon them in the sense we can trample them. We can crush them. We can completely overcome them. So when Jesus talks about, on the one hand, casting out evil spirits, or in Luke, when he spoke about treading upon them, the picture that he's getting across to the people who followed him is he was saying, look, I have given you real power over evil spirits. This is a strength thing. You can throw them out, you can eject them, you can crush them under your feet. Okay. But the question I want to ask before we go on to the how-to is perhaps the even more important, why, well, how is it then that we're able to do this? I mean, tonight we're going to be talking about you and I casting out evil spirits, actually having power over fallen angels. So we've got to ask the question, haven't we? Well, how can this be so? Who are you and I to dare to presume that we can actually dish out orders to fallen angels? Okay. Now, just go back to Mark 16, and I'm actually going to show you why it is that we have this authority, how it actually works. And you'll notice that in Mark 16, when Jesus was talking about casting out demons, he said, in my name, they will cast out demons. Just hold that. When Jesus there spoke about the casting out of demons, he said it was in my name. And don't turn to it, but when we looked at 10, uh, Luke 10, 19, when Jesus was talking about treading upon them, he said, I have given you authority. So we've got two things here. When Jesus spoke about this casting out of evil spirits or treading on them or whatever, he always linked it with the use of that you're doing it in my name and I have given you authority. Now, you'll remember right back at the beginning of this series, all right, quite a long time ago now, even though this is only the seventh talk, um, but I, I said that there were two, two talks that I did probably three, four years ago that I, I said are vital to your understanding and I urge you to get those tapes. They're the spiritual universe tapes. There are two of them. Um, and there's a lot of ground covered in those tapes which is foundational to what we're talking about here but which I am not going to repeat because there's a lot of it and it's on tapes, you know, and it'd just take too long. Uh, so you do need to hear those, those people who haven't heard it, get hold of them. But what I'm going to do is do a very, very quick revision of some of the stuff that we dealt with on those tapes and which certainly apply here. Remembering, we're asking the question now, well, how is it 
<laughs> that you and I can actually go about casting evil spirits out of people. Well, in the answering of that, bearing in mind what we've just said, in my name, and I've given you authority, go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians, after Philippians. If you can't find Philippians, that won't be much help, I know. Right, now, get Colossians chapter 2, and we're just going to read verses 13 to 15, all right? This is Paul writing to the Christians at Colossae. Chapter 2 and verse 15. <clears throat> now, speaking about Jesus, he says, He disarmed the principalities and powers. Don't get hung up over that phrase. All will be revealed in due time. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Okay? Uh, oh, sorry, I read verse 15. I mean to start from verse 13. Hang on. He says, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them through the cross. Now then, what we've got here is the fact that Satan's hold over the world was quite simply this. Because men and women fell into sin, because the human race rebelled against God, and because Satan also rebelled against God, therefore Satan became the God of this world. Satan had control over the fallen human race because they were at one with him in their hearts, in their rebellion against God. So the legal hold that Satan had over men and women was their sin and their rebellion. But you see, the thing is, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for sin. He removed the barrier of sin that stood between men and women and him. And you'll remember in the Salvation series that what we saw ultimately was that whereas there was once a barrier between man and God, it was sin, and man could do nothing to overcome it, through Jesus' death on the cross, he destroyed that barrier, and where that barrier once was, he is now standing. And he said, I am the door of the sheep. And all anyone has to do, whereas once there was an uncrossable barrier to get to God, now all you do is walk through Jesus, the open door. Hence, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. So the sin barrier has been removed between God and the human race. And it's, it's so good the way Paul talks about it here. He talks about Jesus having cancelled the bond which stood amongst us, okay. Um, that he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, in the, um, when the Romans, you know, did capital punishment, and remember, crucifixion was simply the way the Romans did that. What they did is that anyone who was hanging on a cross who had been found guilty and condemned to death, um, above the cross there'd just be a wooden plaque, and the Romans, what they would do is they would write the crime on this piece of wood that the person was dying for, and they would nail it to the top of the cross. 
so that it could be seen that this person being crucified is dying to pay for this crime and the crime would be on a bit of wood written above the cross. But if you read John's Gospel, chapter 19, although we won't do it now, what you'll find is that that didn't happen with Jesus. What happened was that Pilate had a bit of wood nailed onto Jesus' cross, and it simply said, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews, his identity. And the reason that there wasn't a crime up there was because, of course, Pilate knew that Jesus had done no wrong. So Jesus' crime couldn't be nailed to the cross with him because he hadn't committed any crime. So therefore, Pilate simply put on the cross who he was, not what he'd done. And here, when Paul talks about having cancelled the bond which stood against us, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Of course, the point is that that piece of wood, it didn't talk about Jesus' sins, he didn't have any. But of course, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins and everyone else's there everyone else in the world. So my sins, they were written, as it were, on that bit of wood that said, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. My sins, your sins, the sins of the whole world, past, present and future, were nailed to that cross with Jesus. And therefore, the legal demands were laid aside. God has no quarrel with us on the grounds of sin, because we've accepted Jesus' salvation. And for everyone, even people who aren't following yet, the reason that they're under God's judgment isn't because of sin, that's been dealt with, it's because of their rejection of Jesus. They can walk through that door, but they're refusing to. That is why they're under judgment, for refusing the offer of salvation that God had made to them. So therefore, what we've got here is that Satan's hold over men and women throughout history, which was their sin, his legal hold, he had every right to do it, that has now been broken because his legal hold has been nailed to the cross. The sin of the world has been dealt with through Jesus' death on the cross. Therefore, verse 15, Paul says, he disarmed the principalities and powers. Now this word disarmed is apec duo and uh, what it means is to strip off rather like old wallpaper. It means to discard something that you have no more use for. You see Satan's hold is broken. Therefore Satan as the god of this world, his power over people has been stripped like old wallpaper because his hold, the sin of the world, has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And Paul says that he made a public example of them, that not only did the cross destroy Satan's hold over the world, but more than that it made a public example of him and, and all his demon cronies. Now why? Well I'll tell you because on the cross Jesus made Satan look a right idiot. When Jesus died on the cross Satan was once and for all outmaneuvered for all time. However brilliant Satan's mind is, and he is brilliant, he's very very clever, he's nowhere near as clever as the Lord obviously. And remember, no matter how clever someone is, if they're blinded by pride and arrogance, as Satan is, they make mistakes. 
and it becomes their downfall. Think about it. What was it that Satan wanted the moment that Jesus was born? What was his master plan? Kill him. All right? Throughout the Old Testament, Old Testament history is the story of Satan trying to prevent Jesus being born. Hence, anti-Semitism in the Old Testament. The reason that the Jews were always being persecuted was because Satan was trying to wipe them out. And if the Jews as a nation had been wiped out before Jesus was born, because Jesus was going to be born a Jew, no Jewish people, no Jesus, no Messiah. So Satan, throughout the Old Testament, tried to dispose of Israel. No joy, beaten. So Jesus is born. Right, so what's the next thing Satan wants to do? What's his master plan? I'm going to kill Jesus. And he started off immediately. Do you remember Herod slaying all the children? That was Satan's first attempt to kill Jesus. And even if you read through the Gospels, uh, you'll find stories like when, for instance, people will grab Jesus and they want to throw him off a cliff. They were so angry with him, they hated him so much, they wanted to kill him. And Jesus at times had a mob descend on him, you know, to rip him apart. And the Bible just says, and he slipped through them. You know, Jesus always got away. And Satan, he's been, you know, for 33 years, Satan's been doing everything he can to kill Jesus, to try and muck up God's plan. And here, when Jesus dies on the cross, the culmination of everything Satan's done throughout history, the moment Jesus died on the cross, Satan fulfilled his master plan to kill the Son of God. And yet the point is, when Satan actually succeeded, in that microsecond after Jesus was dead, can you imagine what he felt like? What all the demons watching felt like when they realized a microsecond too late? That their ace card, their master plan, killing Jesus, actually became the very means of Jesus destroying their power once and for all. Because it was the moment that Jesus died that Satan lost his hold over this world. So that as Satan actually managed to kill Jesus through the raging mob and through the indifference and the cowardice of Pilate and through the hypocrisy of the priests, etc., etc., as Satan managed to do that, him killing Jesus was actually him banging the very last nail into his own coffin. And Satan was taken for the idiot of the universe. It was Satan's master plan that God used to defeat Satan. Can you imagine how sick Satan is? But it doesn't matter what he does, God outmaneuvers him. And every advance that Satan makes, in whatever way, is immediately turned back on him and becomes the means of defeat. Therefore, Paul says that Satan and the demons, they were made a public example of their idiocy was revealed to all and in the death of Jesus they were finished once and for all okay so therefore we've got this whole thing that Jesus when he died on the cross he dealt with Satan's hold over this world okay now go to Ephesians 1 Satan's hold over the world sin has been dealt with when Jesus died on the cross. 
Therefore, where does that leave anyone who follows Jesus? Now, Ephesians chapter 1, and first of all, we're going to start reading from verse 19. Don't worry about, this is halfway through a sentence, but uh, Paul says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head of over all things for the church. Now there what Paul is saying, because of Jesus dying, God has now raised him up and Jesus has been raised up so high that he is the name over all names. He is the ultimate authority in this universe. Jesus is raised up as high as you can get and God has put everything under Jesus' feet. If Jesus is as high as you can go, then everything else obviously is under his feet. Okay. Now go into chapter 2 and just start at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now what Paul is saying there is that when you become a Christian, because you're one with Jesus, you, I, all of us, we are raised up in the same as it were heavenly places as Jesus. Now what does that mean? Jesus is as high as you can go. Everything is under Jesus' feet. Where does that leave Satan and the demons? Under Jesus' feet. So we've established now Jesus has authority over demons. Well, we knew that anyway, didn't we? Obviously, that's, that's quite clear. But in chapter 2, Paul says that we have been raised up with Christ. We have the same authority as Jesus. We aren't under Jesus' feet. We're up there with Jesus. So if Satan is under Jesus' feet and we are raised up with Christ, where is Satan and the demons in relation to us? They're under our feet. Can you see? All things, including the devil, including every evil spirit, are under Jesus' feet. They are subject to his authority. We, as Christians, are raised up with Christ. Therefore, Satan and the demons are subject to our authority. Now then, go back to when Jesus said about, I give you authority to tread upon all the works of the enemy. Is it surprising? Satan is under Jesus' feet. We're raised up with Jesus. Satan is under our feet. Therefore, we can trample, we can crush with our feet what Satan is doing. Go over into Romans chapter 20. No, don't find Romans chapter 20 because there isn't one. Find rather Romans chapter 16. Take you a long time to find Romans 20, I'll tell you. Right, Romans 16 and verse 20, and Paul just says this. 
he says, then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul's saying, what Satan is doing against you, don't worry, that is going to be crushed under your feet. So can you begin to see we have authority over Satan and over evil spirits because we are raised up, as it were, in heavenly places with Jesus. But there's even more to this, all right? And again, I refer you back to the spiritual universe tapes. What we're doing here in a real thumbnail sketch, they deal with in detail, and you need to hear it. Go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's why when you get converted, you get baptised. You go down into the water and you say, The old me is gone. But when you're raised up, you say, Now there's a new me because of Jesus. I am a new creation. All right? Go over to Hebrews. We are new creations, new creatures. As we're going to see, literally a new breed in the universe. Hebrews chapter 2, and read from verse 7. Now this is the writer quoting an Old Testament psalm and giving it its uh, full meaning. Talking about Jesus. He said, God did make him for a little while lower than the angels, and has crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Right, now then, why was it that Jesus, for a little while, was made lower than the angels? Well, the reason is this. Everything changed when Jesus died on the cross. Now, before Jesus' death on the cross, there was an authority built into the universe. If you like, a supremacy of different types of being. And the order before Jesus died on the cross was this. Obviously, God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ultimate authority, the supreme being. But next under them came the angelic realm, the goodies and the baddies. The fact that fallen angels have fallen and become demons doesn't mean they're not still angels. They are still angels. So the order was God, then the angelic realm, be they goody or baddy angels. Next came human beings, and after human beings, the animal kingdom. Now, that was the order in the universe before Jesus died on the cross, okay? God, the angelic realm, human beings and animals. And that's why it says that when Jesus, when the second person of the Trinity became a man, Obviously, for 33 years, he lived as a man before his death on a cross. Therefore, for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. Why? Because man in his human state, in his natural state, is lower than the angels. Okay. But, 
Once Jesus died on the cross, a possibility was brought into the universe, and it was this, that if any man was in Christ, he became a new creature. A new order of creation happened when Jesus died on the cross, so that any who became disciples of Jesus would become literally a new breed. Now, after Jesus died on the cross, the order in the universe was this. God, then Christians, then the angelic realm, then non-Christians, and then the animal kingdom. Go to Jude. I'll, I'll show you this. Can you see this incredible change? As Christians, we are actually, we outrank the angels and therefore the demons. Uh, not Jude chapter 9, Jude first 9. Let me show you something here. I'll just read it to you. When the archangel Michael, now this is Michael, a real high up angel. Uh, you know, later on we'll be seeing that he's personally responsible for Israel. When the archangel Michael contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, what you've got here is quite simply this. We know from the Old Testament that Moses, he died. He went out into the wilderness and he died. His body was never found. That is all we know from the Old Testament, okay? But in the New Testament, we're given more information. Now, part of the information we're giving is that Moses was alive and well during Jesus' ministry. Do you remember when Moses appeared with him and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? So we know in the Old Testament that Moses died. We know that Elijah didn't. Elijah went straight to heaven. Elijah never died. We knew he was alive and well. But Moses died in the wilderness, but at the time of Jesus, he was alive and well. And indeed, in the last days, Moses and Elijah are going to minister in Jerusalem. They're going to be responsible for bringing God's people back to himself in the second half of the reign of the Antichrist. So the point is this, Moses died in the Old Testament, but God wanted to raise him from the dead. How do we know that? Because Moses is alive now. His ministry hasn't finished any more than Elijah's hasn't. So the point was, Moses died, and we know that God raised him from the dead. Now, in order to raise someone from the dead, you need their body. Now, Satan is interested in mucking up anything he knows God's going to do. And what we see here, there was actually a battle between the angels for the body of Moses. And we see that the archangel Michael, who is personally responsible for Israel, literally ends up battling Satan face to face over the body of Moses. That's the background. But the point we want is this. This is the archangel Michael in a contest, if you like, with Satan himself. Now look what he does. He does not tell Satan to naff off. Michael, the, the archangel Michael does not use authority over Satan. Now, why is that? Well, I'll tell you, Satan outranks him. Michael was an archangel, but do you remember when we did the spiritual universe and we did that one, you know, Satan's biography, we saw that Satan was the number one chief angel. He wasn't merely an archangel, Satan was in control of the entire angelic creation. So Satan outranked Michael. Now, look how Michael deals with him. Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. 
The Archangel Michael had no authority over Satan whatsoever. Satan outranked him. So what the Archangel Michael had to do was to call on a higher authority, the Lord. And he said, the Lord rebuke you. Is he? And then Satan naffed off. So the point we're seeing is that Michael knew better than to get out of line when it comes to authority. He knew he could only move in the authority he had. He had no authority over Satan, so he implored the Lord to deal with Satan, okay? So the Archangel Michael is coming up against Satan himself, okay? Now then, what does he do? He implores the Lord and he says, the Lord rebuke you. Now then, here's the point. You and I have the authority to personally cast out evil spirits. Can you see the point? You and I don't have to pray that the Lord will cast evil spirits out. Jesus says, I have given you authority to cast out evil spirits. Can you see the point? Because we outrank the angels. We didn't used to, but now we do. You and I are higher in authority than the Archangel Michael. We are higher in authority than Satan. Therefore, we don't have to call on the Lord to cast evil spirits out. Archangel Michael had to. You and I don't have to because we are higher in authority than the angels. We are a new breed as Christians. Go to 1 Corinthians. The little thing that Paul says here that baffles some people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, when one of you has a grievance against the brother, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Well, we're going to do that uh, in, the, in, um, in the thousand year reign of Christ. And if the world is to be judged by you, do, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? What's happening here, the Corinthian church, they're all swindling and defrauding each other at work. I mean, they're a right motley crew. And they're all taking people, you know, each other to courts to get their money and stuff like that. And Paul's saying, for heaven's sake, those disputes should be worked out in the church. You don't drag a brother to court, all right? And he's saying, look, for heaven's sake, you're going to judge the world. Can't you even sort out these little problems of yours without going to court? And then he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Well, of course we are, because you and I are going to have a hand in actually dispensing with Satan and the evil spirits in the lake of fire. Because we have authority over them, we outrank them. Okay, now can you see the difference? Before Jesus died on the cross, the order was God, angels, men, the animal kingdom. After Jesus died on the cross, it was God, Christians, angels, non-Christians, and then the animal kingdom. Therefore, you and I have authority over Satan because we're new creatures, we're raised up in Christ, all right? We have authority over Satan, whereas even the Archangel Michael didn't. Now, that is the position that you and I are in, okay? We have authority to cast out evil spirits because of what Jesus has done. Now, what we're going to do now is have a quick look what happens to non-Christians who try and cast out evil spirits. Now, that's an important question, because remember, they don't have authority over evil spirits. Go to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. 
And this will demonstrate to you the only reason why it is that I'm not bothered casting evil spirits out of people. It's because I'm a Christian. We're going to see what happened to some non-Christians, and I wouldn't like it to happen to me at all. Acts chapter 19 and verse 13, all right? Right, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, or I order you, or I command you, that's, that's what it means, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they thought they'd have a crack. They'd seen the disciples doing it and it worked. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled from the house naked and wounded. Acts 19, starting from verse 13. So what you've got here, firstly, it's an instance of obvious demonization, okay? Here is a man who is obviously demonized. Had to be, non-Christians don't know what it is to discern evil spirits, they can't, okay? So we've got obvious demonization. But here's the point, these non-Christians, they came against this demon in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, all right? But here's the point, using the name of Jesus was absolutely of no help to them whatsoever. They got a good kicking. You see, this guy was demonized, he has supernatural strength. Now there's these, how many of them? Seven, seven was it? And this one blow, he gives them a good kicking, he takes all their clothes off, he strips them, totally humiliates them. This is the demon doing it through the bloke, giving him the strength. And they run out of the house, bleeding and naked, all right? Now here's the point, using the name of Jesus was not very much help to them at all, was it? Now, that tells us something tremendously important, and it's this. Non-Christians can have a go at evil spirits using the name of Jesus if they want to, and it gets them nowhere. And what it means is that the name of Jesus is not of itself powerful. Remember, these guys, what did they want to do? They wanted to kick the evil spirit out of this guy. They went in there using the name of Jesus. The evil spirit kicked all seven of them out of the house. But they were using the name of Jesus. And it tells us that the name of Jesus is not a magic charm, whether used by unbelievers or believers. Now, you get a lot of superstition in the charismatic movement. Superstition is itself demonic. Where you find superstition, you have there the activity of evil spirits. Because superstition is one of the doctrines of demons. Superstition is investing inanimate objects and the like with supernatural power. They have none. And if you invest words with supernatural power, you have superstition, you have magic. And many, many Christians, they believe that merely using the name of Jesus will make evil spirits run away or something. They say, all oh, evil spirits are terrified of the name of Jesus. Well, these evil this evil spirit wasn't terrified of the name of Jesus, was it? He gave them a good kicking. 
didn't quake in fear and leave the bloke just because the name of Jesus was flying around. Now, can you hear, you know, get this, using the name of Jesus does not bother demons. It doesn't bother them in the slightest. If it did, they'd be in trouble in Spain. Every other bloke is called Jesus, which is Jesus. The name of Jesus does not bother demons. If it, that's magic. That's a magic charm. Now we've got to get that out of our head completely. There is no power in the words, the sounds, in the name of Jesus. It is merely air vibrating, no more, no less. There is no power in words. Yeah, power of suggestion. If I say, I hate you, I loathe you, well, it has power maybe to hurt you if you give a fig what I think. And, uh, you know, if you do give a fig what I think, and I say, oh, I think you're lovely. Well, that's, that's got power, can make you feel good. But can you see the point is there's no actual energised supernatural power in words. That is superstition, that is magic. And these Christians who are into that, all this name of Jesus stuff, they're virtually into a form of magic, a form of witchcraft. It is very, very dangerous. So then, why is it then that demons leave when we command them to in the name of Jesus? Well, look, the point is this. Do you remember where we started off? Jesus said, in my name they shall cast out demons, and I have given you authority to tread on the power of the enemy. The point is this. The authority that you and I have over evil spirits is a delegated authority. Now, what I mean by that, when someone has delegated authority, it means that they can only use it if they are under it. Do you see what I mean? If you've been given delegated authority, you have authority over people or situations only because someone higher up has authorised you to have that authority. And you only have delegated authority when you are actually moving under the authority of the person who gave it to you. Now, the point is, this whole thing in the Bible about in my name or the name of Jesus, it simply represents authority. All right. Policemen arrest people in the name of the law. Julian arrests people as a copper in the name of the law. Can you see? Because he is authorised to do that. A plumber can't go out and arrest people in the name of the law. Yeah, there's provisions for citizens' arrest, but can you see the point? To do something in the name of means to do it under the authority of whatever it is that you're naming. All right, go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 and uh, find verse 5. A centurion came to Jesus, beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralysed at home in terrible distress. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion answered him, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard him, he marvelled. Now the point is, here it's illness. The centurion wants Jesus to heal his servant, but he recognises that Jesus had authority. But the point is, he says, Lord, I've got authority. 
because I'm a man under authority. Can you see? Now that centurion understood Jesus had authority over illness and evil spirits because Jesus was living under the authority of his Father in heaven. Can you see? So here's the point. When it comes to a practical, you know, day-to-day -day thing, we have authority over evil spirits. Yet we have it in theory. We're raised up with Jesus. Uh, you know, but don't think, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I can go around casting out demons. Don't think it's quite that simple for this reason. We only have authority over evil spirits to the extent that we are actually under the authority of Jesus in our own lives. Can you see the point? If we are wayward Christians, not living under the authority of God, doing our own thing, let's not suppose for one minute that we have delegated authority over Satan and the power of demons. Of course we don't. You can't be not following the Lord closely and yet kicking Satan at the same time. No. If you move away from the Lord and you're not being faithful, Satan will give you the good kicking. And we all know this, don't we? Get out of fellowship with God and you're no threat to the devil. But boy, he suddenly becomes a threat to you, doesn't he? We have authority over evil spirits to the extent that we are actually living under the authority of Jesus in our own lives. Now here's the question. When these guys were trying to cast out, you know, this demon, these non-Christians, uh, you know, we command you to leave in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, the demon says, Je Jesus we know. Well, obviously, <laughs> he's God. But they said, and Paul we know. Who are you? Now what they're saying is, if Jesus told us to go, we go. And if Paul told us to go, we'd go. But we're not frightened of you. Don't do what you say. Now here's the point, is Satan frightened of you? Has he got you marked? Is he worried about you? If you're living under the authority of Jesus, he will be. If you're not, he won't be. It's as simple as that. And if you're not, don't get involved with casting demons out. <coughs> You'll be the one who suffers in the long run. Right, so let's turn now to the actual casting out of evil spirits, okay? Remember, there's no systematic how to cast demons out, nothing like that at all. The Bible does not give us any great details. It's, it's, it's very, very sketchy. It just tells us that it was done, that the casting out of demons was done, as Jesus says. And remember, why? All you're doing is you're chucking demons out. You are commanding, you are telling demons to leave people knowing that they must do what you say because you yourself are under the authority of Jesus himself. Basically what you're doing is this, you're a bailiff, you are serving an eviction order. And a bailiff, his job, if someone's been evicted, the bailiff presents them with the eviction notice and the reason that a bailiff does it rather than a five foot three clerk from the council is because the bailiff is there to make sure that the people leave. And if they don't, he will personally throw them out. Now that's what you and I are. We are bailiffs serving eviction orders on evil spirits who no longer have the right to be there in various people's lives. Now, remember, we've seen two areas so far. There's obvious demonization and non-obvious demonization, okay? And the non-obvious demonization needs discernment. But now I'm going to see two more areas. Now, the first two, obvious and non-obvious, are to do with establishing whether there is a demon there, okay? But these next two are to do with the actual mechanics of ministering to people. There are two situations that differ in which you can actually come across this. The first one is this. 
It's a situation when what might or might not be a manifestation of, of an evil spirit in someone presents itself to you. It just comes to you. You are not looking for it, it just presents itself to you. That's the first category, all right? Now, the second category is like when maybe you're talking and praying over difficulties with someone, and then as a result of that, you explore the possibility that demonization might be the cause of the difficulty. Can you see? So you've got the first category is when possible demonization presents itself to you unasked for. The second category is when you're in a situation where you are exploring the possibility that that might actually be the problem. I'll give you an example of number one, okay? Uh, let's, let's say at the moment that suddenly someone here starts freaking out or, or really, really behaving strangely or perhaps even more strangely than we all normally behave. You see what I mean? And something odd starts happening to them i.e. you were presented, can you see, quite suddenly with what could be a possible manifestation. Now, it may or may not be in the obvious category. If we were sitting here and suddenly Andy starts floating up the wall, we, we'd know that, right, and there's an evil spirit manifesting in Andy, and it's obvious because he's levitating, all right? Um, but you see, the point is, it might not be. It might not be obvious at all. For instance, it might be having someone an epileptic fit. Now, a lot of Christians, they think an epileptic fit, that's a demon. Rubbish! I mean, some demonic manifestation may look like an epileptic fit, but it doesn't mean that people who've got epilepsy, which is an illness, are demonised. But can you see, the point is, it suddenly comes upon you. You're not looking for it, it just happens, OK? There's that. That's category number one. An example of, of category number two is maybe you're talking with someone, you're chatting with them, maybe they've come to you for prayer about various problems um, and you're talking over or whatever and praying about it and, uh, you know, and then, then sort of something starts to happen which may or may not be a demonic manifestation. But the point is that you've been praying with someone and saying, well, look, maybe this is a demonic thing. Let's ask the Lord to show us. So you've got the two categories. You've got when what may or may not be a demonic manifestation just comes, it just happens. You're not looking for it, it just happens. But then you've got the second area when you are definitely exploring whether or not demonization might be at the root of the problem. Okay? So you've got when it sparks itself off, taking you by surprise, or you've got when it's sparked off quite deliberately by you as part of your trying to help someone in particular problems. Okay, let's, let's just have a look at a biblical example in category one. Uh, when demonization just comes upon you, you weren't expecting it and bang, it just happens. Go to Acts 16. Acts 16, and we'll start reading from verse 16. And this is Luke writing, obviously. He says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. We, we saw this earlier. It's got a python spirit. And in the earlier talk, we went into all that, all right? Uh, a girl who had a python spirit. I've lost my place now. Oh, yes. And brought her owners much gain by soothsaying or telling the future. She's a, 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 a you know, a fool. Fortune cookie. <laughs> She's a fortune teller, all right? She, 
She followed Paul and us, crying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul was annoyed and turned to her and said to the spirit, I charge you or I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, there are several things here, all right, but can you see that this comes upon Paul? He's not, this is a case of when a possible demonization presents itself to you. Now, there are various things here. The first one is this, this was not obvious demonization. There was nothing obvious about it at all. There was nothing clearly supernatural here at all. Because after all, I mean, yeah, a successful, accurate fortune teller well into the occult is going to be demonised. But believe me, I mean, there are loads and loads of people who reckon themselves with telling the future. I mean, they, you know, they're just, you see, they, you know, they never write about anything. So it's not obvious demonization. Here is a girl quite simply saying what looks like a very good thing. You know, these men are servants of, of God Most High. So it wasn't obvious demonization. Paul had to discern it. There was nothing supernatural about this on the surface at all. Now, the second thing to notice is that it went on for a long, long, a long time before Paul did anything about it. Every day this girl was there. They were out in the marketplace preaching, and every day this girl was there. And it was only after many days that Paul did anything about it. Now, two things there. God's timing must be followed in all deliverance. Even if it's a case where you know that there's a demonic problem in someone, don't just pitch in. God has a time. Now, that is foundational to the whole thing about casting out evil spirits. A lot of Christians assume the mere fact that you're witnessing what you know to be a demonic manifestation means that that means it's God's time to deal with the spirit. Not true. God's timing must be followed, all right? So even when you have fully established, maybe someone in this fellowship that you're praying with, and you've fully established that their pro the cause of their problem is a demon, the mere fact that you've fully, fully established that does not mean that that is therefore the time to cast the demon out. You've got to keep waiting on the Lord and go as he leads and make sure that you're following his timing. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing, all right? And the second thing, this girl was a non-Christian. And there's another reason why Paul waited so long. He didn't just have to establish whether or not she was demonized, which he did, he established that, he knew it was. But he had to establish something else as, as talk. He had to wait until he knew from the Lord that this girl was going to become a Christian. That was vital. What, after all, is the point of casting a demon out of a non-Christian who doesn't then follow the Lord? They'll pick up another one, you see. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that this girl not only had the demon cast out, but she became a Christian? Let's just read verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, why was their hope of gain gone? It wasn't because she had the evil spirit cast out of her. If she was still into the occult, she could have got another one. No problem. Their, their, their money was gone because this girl had got converted and had repented of her occultism. Can you see? 
That's why these girls' owners realised that their money was gone. Because the girl stopped what she was doing. She gave up, she repented of her occult involvement. She became a Christian, all right? So therefore, this girl, she became a Christian and said, right, I am never going to practice soothsaying again. It's wrong. Paul would have told her that, brought her to repentance, and she'd have become a Christian. So therefore, she put all that behind her. Her behavior was now totally different. This girl had become a Christian. There is no point casting evil spirits out of non-Christians unless you know from the Lord before you do it that it's right to do it and that they're going to become Christians. Otherwise, leave well alone. Uh, some time ago, a few years ago, I mean, so just one example, Blinder and I were in South End one afternoon and uh, sort of like you've got the, you know, like the pedestrian precinct that goes up from, uh, you know, like the promenade right up into the town centre. And as we were walking up there, like towards the shopping centre end, away from the sea, uh, there was sort of like a load of the Hare Krishna people there. And, um, you know, we just ignored them. And, uh, but when we walked back about an hour later, you know, there was sort of like a crowd there. But one of these guys, you know, on his orange robes and, you know, sort of his bald head and stuff like that, um, he came up to me and they were handing out these meditation books, you know, written by one of their gurus or something like that. And he came right for me. He came through the crowd right for me. And he just handed me this book. He said, you want this book? And all I did is I said, now, now, what does a young man like you want a book like that for? Now, I, I don't wear crosses, I don't wear Jesus stickers. I don't now, I didn't then. And he, he looked at me and he suddenly went, you're a born-again Christian. And he started effing and blinding and he started going at me and he went absolutely doolally, all right? He's like jumping up and down, he freaked because he knew that I was born again Christian. Now, Blinder was standing, you know, of course people were looking on by now, you know, he's, you know, this little guy absolutely freaking at me. And Blinda sort of like, she said, how does he know you're a Christian? And I looked at him, you know, he's there, you know, red in the face now. And I looked at him and I said, because the demons in him know that the Holy Spirit is in me. And he went bananas, <laughs> you see. And off he went yelling and screaming and stuff like that. But I didn't cast a demon out of him. What's the point? Now, had the Lord shown me, cast that demon out, he's going to become a Christian, fine. But it would have been stupid to have cast a demon out of him. Can you see? It's, it's important to realise that. Don't go casting demons out of non-Christians, all right? Uh, now then, a, th a third thing here is to understand why would a demon in someone have them follow Christians saying, these men are servants of the Most High God? Why, why would a demon do that? I mean, that sounds a pretty good thing to do. They're, they're showing you the way of salvation, aren't they? Well, what was Satan up to here? He was trying to get Christian backing for the occult. I mean, it's like, for instance, if you take spiritualism, spiritualism, the belief that you can contact the dead, it has nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity. Nothing whatsoever. The Old Testament condemns it and says it's a sin. The New Testament condemns it, says it's a sin. Spiritualism has nothing in common with Christianity at all. But have you ever walked past the Christian spiritualist church? Can you see, that is why all these sectarian movements, they're not all walking around with Qurans, are they? They're walking around with Bibles. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses say they're Christians. The Mormons say they're Christians. The Christadelphians say they're Christians. Can you see? Because Satan wants to get acceptance for his lies being Christian. So therefore, if you get a girl who's well known as being an occultist, running around saying, these men, these Christians, they're of God, then what happens is that people think, oh, yeah, occultism and Christianity are both the same thing. Can you see? It was the demon in this girl trying to get, as it were, Christian backing uh, for the occult, okay? So, so there's a biblical example of category what demonization came. All right, Paul wasn't looking for it, it presented itself to you. But it's, it's more category two, all right? This, this is really, I suppose, what people are interested in. And it's this, it's when you explore the possibility that demonization is the cause of someone's difficulty, whatever that difficulty may be. Um, it, you know, it could be anything, anger, fear, depression, it could be anything, it's not important what it is, but anything. And what you've found with people is that other approaches have failed. Uh, repentance and prayer have brought no relief. No change, no peace in any way at all. I.e. that someone's got a, a fairly serious ongoing problem that, that the standard will, you know, giving it to the Lord and, and, and repenting of it or whatever, that all that over a long period of time doesn't seem to have brought any relief or deliverance at all, all right? Now then, when you get a situation like that, then maybe, just maybe, I say no more than that, but maybe there is a possibility, at least, that that person may be demonized. That they may have a demon that has obviously been in them all the time. Uh, it's not the case that when you become a Christian, all your demons automatically leave. Sometimes, I mean, I was very fortunate, you know, mine got cast out three days after I became a Christian. I did have demons, I was an occultist, not everyone does. But if you have a demon before you're converted, then it's very possible it might be a, a long time being a Christian before it's actually revealed and dealt with, okay? So the situation we've got is maybe, you know, say Belinda and I, all right, you know, sort of people with ongoing difficulties, and every now and then we've come to a situation where we've said, right, there is a possibility that this might be demonic. I mean, sometimes when we sit down with people, we already know it is because the Lord has shown us. All right, fine. But often it's, well, maybe, who knows? So what we've got to do then is, Lord, we need to discern. Will you show us whether this is a demonic thing? I mean, does this just need more prayer or does this need, you know, is there a demon in there cocking things up? All right. Now, <clears throat> all I, I suppose I can, is, is to tell you what I do. I, I mean, it's, it's what I feel happy. It's my understanding of what the Bible says. In a situation like that, what I do is that I ask the Lord specifically, you know, we'll, we'll like pray together, and I ask the Lord to reveal if there's a demon in that situation, and then just see what happens. And what I'm looking for is that having asked the Lord that, what I'm looking for is that if there is a demonic problem, then the Lord will reveal that it's there in whatever way. Person suddenly starts floating up the wall, you're home dry, aren't you? I mean, it's easy. But it's not levitating or something, you see, or oh, their heads start spinning round. No, I've never actually seen that one. Um, you know, but 
you know, but <laughs> you're just saying, Lord, is this a demonic? Is there a demon in there? Now, there's one approach that some people take that I think is a very silly one, and it's this. They start pitching in to the person, and they're they start speaking to the demon and, and, and they're doing, if, if there's a demon there, come out. If you're in there, come out. <laughs> now, I think that's silly. And the reason I think that's daft is because if there isn't one there, and, and that's after all what you're trying to find out, if there isn't one there, you're talking to yourself. And I mean, that, that just seems a daft way to do it. I've, I've got no sympathy with that. It's too dramatic, all right? You know, not come out if you're in there, because, uh, I mean, you're a right idiot if there isn't. But what I'm saying is we'll pray and, and just ask the Lord, if there's a demonic thing here, Lord, then show us. Now then, one of two things might happen, all right? Maybe you actually get specific discernment. Now, because discernment is a subjective gift of the Holy Spirit, I mean, obviously it's subjective, it's, it's very hard to describe it. You individuals must get to know how the Lord uses them in particular gifts. Now, for instance, when it comes to this sort of stuff and discernment, Belinda, for instance, will see things. Um, I mean, it's like once we went to a place and there was a woman there who later we got to know quite well. I was speaking at a service. Or was I? I can't remember if I was speaking at this particular occasion. But she was sitting in front of us. Yes, I was. But she was sitting in front of us, all right, and uh, Belinda could see this, this like creature wrapped round her neck. And Belinda's sitting there in this sort of like, you know, religious building where a service is going on. And, and she's seeing this woman down the front who she didn't know, and, and she could see this creature wrapped round her neck. Um, she didn't say anything, about, you know, about it at the time. But after, after the service, after I, you know, I sort of, uh, sort of done the speaking, this woman came up to us and, and she spoke to us about various problems and, um, and she was convinced that she had a demon and we said, well look, we'll go and pray. And uh, as it happened, she did have a demon and every time we came against the demon, her head started going like that, no, and she lost absolute control of her head. And she said, you know, it's like something's sitting on my neck turning my head. And that was exactly what Blinda had seen an hour earlier and we didn't know who she was. And, and there have been times when Belinda will see something. She'll have a vision or whatever. So that, that, that will tell me, yeah, you know, this is starting to look good now. Uh, for myself, I don't see things. I'll know it. I'll just know, you know, that, yeah, there's, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about infallibly. Mistakes are all, you know, obviously. But for me, it's not so much what I see, but it's kind of a knowledge inside okay so there may be a specific kind of discernment one way or the other you know think right this is a demon and then if you have peace and it's god's time you know get on with it cast the thing out all right but after praying like that you might get a specific manifestation the person might start twitching or something like that again it's not you know because i mean you know as we're going to see some people are very very good at, at coming up with manifestations even though they're not demonized but the point is you're praying saying lord is this a you know a demonic thing and something will happen that kind of 
makes you think maybe a discernment or the person starts doing something out of control or maybe they say oh goodness there's this 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 blackness has just descended on me as you've prayed then these may be indications it's only a maybe can't be absolutely definite you can only be definite when something supernatural happens all right it doesn't matter if we make mistakes this is very exploratory by definition this ministry is and as long as we're not being daft as long as we don't get stupid, we can afford to make mistakes. What's important is to keep an open mind. When you have doubts, obviously look to the Lord and consult with others. If you think, you know, maybe someone's come to you with problems, you know, and, and you're not sure, well, say, look, let's, let's go and consult with someone else. And don't be too dogmatic. I mean, like, if at the beginning you think, no, they haven't got a demon, don't discount it 100%. But even worse, if you think, yeah, I'm sure they've got a demon, be prepared to, no, they haven't. Can you see? If you get something fixed in your mind that the law can't change, then obviously it's not going to be helpful. So you've got to be open, consult with others, don't be afraid to ask advice, and you've just got to muddle your way through in faith. All right, but let's remind ourselves, all right, that there are a multitude of things that could happen which might be demonization, but which aren't necessarily, can you see? Twitching, all manner of things, they might just be psychological. But the point is, assuming that you get to the point where you are reasonably happy, beyond reasonable doubt, that there is a demon in this person and that it is time <laughs> to set the person free. So basically what you do is this, you tell that thing to get out. You use the authority that you've got against that demon and speak to the evil spirit and tell it to go. You have that authority, use it. And when you're doing it, Tell the demon like you mean it. Uh, I mean, sometimes, I, you know, I mean, we've got to learn. I've sort of seen people and, and sort of like they're almost, well, excuse me, Mr. Demon, <laughs> go. You know, I mean, for heaven's sake, sound like you mean it. You have authority over that thing, so tell it to go. All right. Now, ensure ensure that if there's anything that person needs to repent of, ensure that there's that. Remember, demons are never finally the problem. They're, they're, they're coats in the, cupboard, in the cupboard of your life. The problem is the coat hanger. The coat hanger is always sin. Ensure that there's anything that needs to be repented of. Anything in that person's life that might suggest the possibility of an entry point, immorality, occultism, hatred, anything like that, make sure they repent of it. Then, when you kick the demon out, because the coat hanger goes with it, it won't be able to come back in because there'll be nothing left for it to hang on to, all right? So if you think there's a demon there, beyond reasonable doubt, get in there and command it to go, all right? So the question we've got to ask now, and you'll certainly be glad we've asked this on some occasions, this will happen to you, is question, what about if the demon won't go. All right, so you're, you're kind of cast, you know, you're beyond reasonable doubt, this is a demon, you're getting in there and it is just ignoring you. You know, okay, what about that? Well, one, remember God's timing, right? Might be too soon. Don't be put off, don't be discouraged, might be too soon. 
there might still be things for that person to repent of. The coat hangers might not yet have all been revealed. That's a possibility. Maybe there's a problem with unbelief on whatever side. More likely yours. If someone's got a demon and a demon's manifesting and you can't get the thing out, don't turn on them and say, well, you're obviously not believing because the chances are it's you who isn't. You're talking to the demon, not the person the demon's in. Maybe there's unbelief. Maybe you're coming against this demon and in your heart of hearts you're thinking, that blessed thing is not going to go. Well, if you're thinking that, it's not. Do you see what I mean? Maybe unbelief and then you just need to take five, just take time out and, you know, maybe it's that. Maybe it's not a demon at all. Now, this is, you're only going to learn this through experience, all right? There are people who can provide manifestations with incredible skill. Os I have seen Oscar performances. Uh, I mean, well, no, no, no names here, but I mean, the last instance, and some of you will remember, all right? Uh, I mean, this, this guy was really good at it. And uh, I remember one night, it was about two o'clock in the morning, I got this really distraught phone call from a guy who was living with him at the time. And this was not some wimp. This was one real strapping young Christian lad who was living with him. And he was terrified. And he phoned up about two o'clock in the morning and I could hear all the noises in the background. The noises were absolutely unbelievable. And this bloke was living with him and said, look, you've got to come round. I mean, you know, please come round. So I got on the phone to Rob. I mean, you know, we knew. Fortunately, we knew. I got on the phone to Robert. I said, right, you know, so I drove over. I collected Robert and off we went. We got there about half past three in the morning. All right, and we march up in the room, and here's this bloke, so, you know, all the manifestations, all right. And I went up to him, I knelt down, I said, stop it. And he went. <laughs> he was quite normal. Now, you can't do that to a demon, but you see, I knew that he was mucking about. You see, it was bringing him round, not casting demons out. He'd, he'd convinced himself he got them, he hadn't, and so we acted like it. But going in there, that kind of stop it uh, brought him round. And it, now, you know, you can't stop demonic manifestations like that. So maybe it's not a demon, all right? You've, you know, you've just got to, you know, go, go careful and kind of see, see what happens. So if it's the thing, the demon won't come out, okay? There's all those possibilities. And so here's the thing, stop. When you think, no, this demon isn't coming out and it's all getting a bit hard work, stop it there and leave it, okay? Just pray more and consult with others. There's never a hurry. Consult with other people, get them praying with you about it. That's what I do. I mean, usually I'll come and see Robert and Bella and say, look, we've got, you know, could you see this person with us? We're not blah, 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 I see. But the thing not to do, all right, you're pitching in and you think it's a demon and may well be, but you're not having any success, all right? Not long sessions. Don't think, well, that's it. I'm not leaving till that demon's gone. Because, I mean, that is just going to commit you to an all-night session that is going to get absolutely nowhere, all right? Neither is the answer shouting louder. Some Christians seem to think that demons don't like noise. And that the louder you shout, the faster they're going to go. That's absolute rubbish. I mean, if you're yelling yourself into apoplexy, the demon will be delighted. Histrionics are unbelief, not faith. You're going to tell a demon to go like you mean it, but you're not going to yell yourself hoarse. 
You don't have to if you've got authority, all right. So remember, there's never any hurry. Uh, maybe you've got to pray and fast. There have been times when I know I've had to do that. Think, well, I'm not getting in right, okay, I've got to pray and fast. You've got to be open, you've got to be flexible. There's no magic formula. You've just got to go ahead trusting the Lord and the whole time be willing and ready to go to other people with advice who, uh, for advice who are maybe going to be able to be helpful to you in that situation. Now then, just, just a, uh, a couple of very quick things just to, to end up with, all right? There is nothing in the Bible at all to suggest that when you're casting out demons, you have to send them anywhere. Now, we saw this in earlier talk, didn't we? Uh, the idea comes from uh, the story of the Gadarene demoniac. And remember, the demons in him, they, they begged Jesus not to send them to Tartarus. Um, and we saw that Jesus had no intention of sending them to Tartarus, but the demons thought he did, and so they begged him not to send them into Tartarus. Now, that, that one story, you know, you, you often find amongst Christians that, you know, that, that when they're casting a demon out, they send the demon somewhere. It's silly, there's no, you're casting a demon out. The emphasis isn't on where you're sending it, the emphasis is where you're getting it out of. You don't have to send them anywhere, you just cast them out. And I mean, when you've cast a demon out of someone, and I mean, when that person is really right with God in what area it was that the demon got in on, believe me, that demon can spend the rest of that person's life tailing them two feet behind them. Won't be able to get back in. You, you don't have to send demons anywhere. You just kick them out, all right? Um, also, there's no need to forbid them to return. Now, the only exception is in regards to children. If you just go to Mark 9, and this is the only exception of its kind in the Bible, uh, Mark 9, and uh, verse 14 to 29, we're not going to read it all, we're running out of time. Uh, but this was a child, a young child who had a demon, and Jesus cast the demon out. Now, um, in, verse, in verse 25, Jesus said, you dumb and deaf spirit, the effect of this spirit was the child couldn't speak, it couldn't hear. Incidentally, this was a messianic miracle, all right? Uh, and also this child had fits, all right? Fits and sometimes it will fall in fire and things like that. Jesus knew that this child was demonized and he says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, that is the only time in the Bible where you get a prohibition of a demon being cast out to return. But this was a young child. So therefore, any time, and there are, you know, young children can have demons. I was demonized from the earliest age. And there is, there's a time, as God leads, for children, if they have demons, to be set free. Obviously, if the parents are Christians and realize they've got this problem, in an instant like that, forbid the spirit to return, all right? And the reason is, okay, because young children, they've ended up demonized through no fault of their own. So, and because they're young children, they're not following the Lord in a mature way. Yeah, can you see what I mean? So there's a sense they can't protect themselves in the Lord, so casting a demon out of a child forbid that demon to return, and it will not return, because you have authority over it. It has to do what you say. But obviously, when you cast demons out of consenting adults or older children who are following the Lord faithfully and stuff like that, obviously, the point is if you follow the Lord, you are impervious to evil spirits. Obviously. 
I mean, because, you know, you've got right with God in whatever area it was that let the demon in. So the point is, I had demons. I mean, I got converted within three days. You know, I, I mean, I was kind of manifesting all over the place in a right old state. Uh, fortunately, some people around who knew what to do, they cast the demons out of me, all right? I've never had any trouble since, because I repented of the occult. I haven't spent the last 20 years fighting the stay away from me. Well, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, you know, don't, don't be frightened of demons. They can't just kind of come in and just jump into anyone willy-nilly. So, you know, there's no need to forbid them to return um, except in the uh, instances of, of children. Um, I haven't got time to read this out, but if you want to make note of it, in Matthew 15, verse 22, you get an instance of deliverance from a distance, i.e. when Jesus, when someone was set free from evil spirit, when someone else came to Jesus and told him about them. So it's sort of like deliverance from afar is a possibility, all right? And who, who knows? As God leads, no problem. There can be times when if we know someone is demonized and they can't be here, then through prayer. Obviously, you don't try and yell, I command you to come out over about 10 miles hoping the demon will hear. In an instance like that, you pray the demon out. Obviously, that possibility is there, okay? Uh, you can't arrange it, but if that comes up, that's a possibility. And then just the last thing I want to say is that irresponsibility in public ministry has got to be avoided. I mean, you all know, you're sick of hearing it. I'm, I'm just totally against the way Christians go about things today. I'm against big public meetings, making appeals. You get emotionalism. Uh, they attract unstable people. Um, and it's going to, to deepen these people in their instability. And I think that appeals, particularly in regards to demonization, are to be avoided. If you have a Christian meeting, you advertise it, you get loads of Christians along, and they know that you're going to do casting out of demons, I guarantee at the end you make an appeal, anyone who's demonized come forward, and every unstable Christian in a radius of 20 miles is going to be walking up to the front. Obviously, it's, you know, it's crazy. An irresponsibility has got to be avoided. This has got to be a one-to-one -one thing. This has got to be done personally. It's got to be done within the context of one-to-one -one and relationships. And if you think about it as well, if you minister to people in public, and I mean, you know, a lot of those guys and women out there have got weird ideas. Uh, you know, that, that they think that everything is a demonic manifestation. So say, for instance, someone goes forward at a meeting and they say, I need prayer. And you've got sort of like, you know, one of these Christians who's in the demons under the bed syndrome, and they say, you got a demon. Now, you could say, it's, well, you know, maybe this person, they're standing in front of a meeting, and they think, what? They're nervous, and they start sweating. I think, oh, blimey, I've got a demon. That don't sound too good. And they're nervous, so they start shaking. And the bloke up around say, look, he's shaking, sweating, manifestation. There's the proof. You know, and you put people in a catch-22 situation. There's no integrity in it. It's not going to happen here. And I suppose that's the main thing. If you want to go to places where it does happen, fine. You can get a good laugh out of it sometimes. But the trouble is, funny though it is objectively, I mean, the last time I went forward at a meeting, and I've given these meetings a lot of chances, and now they've had it with me. I won't go near them. But the last chance I gave it, all right, I actually went forward to get prayer for biting my nails. Now, I don't bite my nails anymore. The Lord set me free about a year ago. This was a lot longer ago than this. It made no difference. I went out and I said, pray for me, I bite my nails. I'm compulsive. And the next thing, he's casting a demon of nail biting <laughs> out of me. And I'm standing there thinking,
What prayer? Yeah, what can you do? Bit my nails worse than ever after that.